thank you to everyone who contributed to making this uh, possible, and thank you for joining me. This is obviously um, in probably all of the countries we are calling in from, and for certain political reasons, mind, right, <laughs> in this 24-hour period, a time of some, some chaos. So I really appreciate the opportunity to step out from that momentarily and join you in discussion. I know we have only about an hour together today, but I, I want to have a chance to learn about your work to the extent possible and, and make this as much of a conversation as possible. Um, towards that end, I wanted to say, I, I have a, a formal uh, presentation for you, but uh, I wanted, before launching into it, to sort of take the group's temperature in terms of knowledge of the topic to see if we should instead launch directly into general discussion. But one thing I try to establish at the very first, uh, presuming no foreknowledge on the parts of, of audiences, is that laboratory-grown meat, at least as a consumer product, does not exist. It, so it, it, it is, it is uh, unlike so-called plant-based meats, the burgers created by Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, insofar as uh, it has not passed from the stage of laboratory research into industrial production. Um, it's not available in uh, local uh, waitresses or, or uh, Safeways or whatever supermarket you happen to have, Aldi, whatever supermarkets you happen to have near you. Um, this is a week of profound electoral uncertainty for us in the United States in a long season of uncertainty for the world because of the coronavirus pandemic. The UK has just gone into a new round of lockdowns as have parts of continental Europe. And I suspect that parts of the US will soon follow. So you'll understand that today, I, I really have prediction on my mind and especially the role of futurist thinking in the weird social nexus where food and technology meet. That's the first of my, my awful meat puns today. My presentation for you today draws from um, the, one of the first significant talks I gave about cultured meat, which was at Oxford's Food and Cookery Symposium in 2016, uh, which related lab-grown meat to the history of uh, awful eating. Since then, a great deal has happened in the world of cultured meat research but cultured meat is still not a product in any market in the world, except perhaps as an idea. Figuratively speaking, it's still an idea on the market for venture capitalists, and the startups trying to turn it into a product are still hard at work. Earlier this fall, a documentary film called uh, Meet the Future, M-E-A-T, the Future, about cultured meat, appeared in virtual film fest. In its basic contours, this film presents what I might call, borrowing a term from the business world futurist, Peter Schwartz, the official future, quote unquote, official future of the cultured meat community. Cultured meat may not be here today, but the technology, they say, is almost ready, and it will yield a scalable animal cell-based form of meat that can eventually replace cheap meat. No more animals need die for our hamburgers, and the environmental footprint of industrial cheap meat will, will lift from our green and pleasant lands. 
When I began my fieldwork in cultured meat laboratories, futurist think tanks and nonprofits, back in 2013, this, this kind of, I want to call it a kind of a narrative closure, hadn't happened, hadn't, hadn't happened yet. There was uncertainty still about what we would call the identity, the nature, maybe even the ontology of animal cells grown in vitro in the lab. By 2020, we still don't know if cultured meat will successfully emerge as a food product, but there's consensus among its promoters that animal muscle and fat cells grown in vitro will be meat by their definition of meat. As a historian and ethnographer, I took up the task of tracking the emergence of this technology. And I, I wrote a book called Meat Planet, Artificial Flesh and the Future of Food, in which I tried to describe the things that made lab-grown meat imaginable in the late 20th and early 21st century. I'm neither a promoter nor a critic of lab-grown meat. I agree with cultured meat's promoters about the great environmental costs of conventional animal agriculture. I'm, I'm sympathetic to their sense that it has a huge moral footprint as well because of our cruel treatment of the billions of animals we breed. I found myself in the course of my research in the position of the character Fox Mulder in the 1990s science fiction program, The X-Files, I wanted to believe. I still do. Part of me is techno-utopian enough to want a technological solution to the problem of cheap meat. But I also have a professional obligation to philosophical skepticism. And I've come to think ultimately that the desire for a technological solution is itself a significant problem because it's closely related to an attachment to ideologies of economic growth and civilizational scale whose convenience symbol might well be the hamburger. Corpse reclamation, a foreign fart, soylent green, syrup of soot. I wish the people pushing these, this garbage had to eat it at every meal for the rest of their lives. <laughs> These are all statements that have been made about two novel foods introduced to English audiences several hundred years apart. One of them is currently very, very important in our day-to-day -day existence. The other could become important if it ever makes it out of the lab and onto our plates. One of them, as you might guess, is coffee. Introduced via the coffee houses of London, but first at Oxford, in 1650, just where in Oxford's a matter of some dispute, perhaps some of you know. The other, the subject of my talk today is laboratory grown meat, uh, otherwise known as, as bat meat or schmied or frankenmeat or cultured meat, but also and, and, and controversially clean meat and cultivated meat. We can talk about the terminological battles later if you'd like. Anthropological interest and disgust has often and prominently organized itself around the idea of types of things that are clean on the one hand and unclean on the other. Um, some historians have surmised that 17th century London consumers found coffee disgusting, 
not only because of its flavor, but because it represented a novel, an unfamiliar category of beverage, something that was simultaneously hot and bitter and non-alcoholic. That revulsion was obviously, and, and for me, happily, overcome. Some promoters of cultured meat love to cite such cases of generational change in our tastes. And in the course of the ethnographic work I've conducted within the cultured meat movement, I've often been asked by people in that movement to provide historical cases that would give them precedent by which to prove that humans are adaptive creatures, uh, receptive towards new foods. But one weird feature of the modernization that we have seen in much of the world is that it has involved both a restriction and a widening of the range of foods we consume, at least in the developed West. Obviously, a vast increase in the types of cuisines and in the availability of ingredients, but also a striking narrowing of the range of animals and body parts that we eat. In fact, one of the weird features of cultured meat, I've argued, is that by pr prospectively taking the form of hamburgers, sausages, chicken nuggets, and so forth, it effectively mimics the restricted set of meat forms with which we've grown familiar. It's a new food entirely dependent on mimicking familiar ones. Promoting cultured meat is not gonna be my task today, but I also am not gonna agree with its critics, many of whom consider it simply disgusting to eat meat that's developed in laboratories and who would even question cultured meat's status as food. I think that criticisms of laboratory-grown meat are uh, most interesting as a source of ethnographic data, telling us much about how certain categories of consumers establish edibility, uncleanness, or even abjection. And public criticisms of laboratory-grown meat which do sometimes come from conventional meat lobbyist organizations, they, they have done so here in the US, come well in advance of, of actual opportunities to eat it. While cultured meat has been eaten in public on several occasions, mostly at demonstrations and art events, researchers in both industry and academia are still trying to figure out the technical aspects of tissue engineering meat from perfecting something comparatively simple like hamburger to producing more complex forms of meat, such as steak, which has to be made in three dimensions and requires vascularization systems that are tricky to work out. These technical challenges are actually quite similar to those faced by researchers working in regenerative medicine who seek to use tissue engineering to repair regrow or replace diseased or damaged human body parts. One great irony of laboratory grown meat is that this novel food of the future has already been treated by its detractors like um, a kind of science fiction awful. And yet in the vision of the future held dear by the cultured meat movement, there would be no more awful or at least not much of it for anyone to eat. Awful and laboratory grown meat illuminate each other. Each prompts a reconsideration of meat itself, 
both in the definitional sense and in the sense of how we eat it and why and in what amounts. Both, you might say, are our negative space around high value cuts of meat. Offal performs this function in the obvious way that the word's etymology indicates. Offal, the word, comes from obfall, or that which falls away in the butchering process. And cultured meat does so, or at least it, it aspires to do so, by duplicating high value cuts by means other than large scale industrial animal agriculture. But a larger argument, which I, I present in Meat Planet, is that cultured meat and offal, as consumed and rejected in a contemporary European and North American context, point to meat's surprising combination of what I would call semiotic stability and instability, or if you prefer, its ability to signify powerfully while its actual definition shimmers, shifts, wobbles, and shakes. This signification is linked by some writers to meet symbolic representation of our mastery over nature, or by others with the mortality that animal bodies remind us of. Such changeability echoes the shifting history of meat consumption which in Europe only began to resemble our contemporary patterns in the mid 19th century, part of a broader dietary change linked to agricultural productivity, urbanization and industrialization. The shaking of meat's meanings within the discourse around laboratory grown meat opens for me onto a set of important philosophical problems. And the one that has preoccupied me the most was most elegantly articulated by the German intellectual historian Hans Blumenberg, for whom modern thought is shaped by a key tension between uh, organisms on the one hand and artifacts on the other, between things that grow versus things that we make. The question for Blumenberg was whether the artificial world we've made for ourselves can be experienced as, as deeply legitimate in the same sense that we experience our given environment as legitimate. And I'll get into that a bit more deeply towards the end of the talk. Laboratory-grown meat does not have to make it to the supermarkets, I suggest, to prompt this kind of philosophical reflection, or to prompt pressing reflections on the ethical and environmental damage caused by industrial animal agriculture. Indeed, in helping us to thusly reflect, cultured meat performs one of the classic functions of good science fiction, that is to say, social critique. Simply put, for about 20 years now, scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, futurists, and others have been trying to promote the creation of pieces of muscle tissue based on cell samples taken from animals. The result demonstrated most famously uh, in an August 2013 hamburger demonstration in London is meat for which no animal body was born, raised, slaughtered, or butchered. Not only does no animal need to suffer, no cutting of the carcass is necessary. This was, was lauded by those who lauded it as a way of minimizing waste and suffering at once. There is no full animal to eat and thus no waste. 
in the promotional literature surrounding cultured meat, it's almost mandatory to, to quote Winston Churchill's remark of 1932. We shall escape the absurdity of growing a whole chicken in order to eat the breast or wing by growing these parts separately under a suitable medium. Um, I, I doubt that Churchill imagined growing other parts like the feet or the gizzard. Um, a literary echo of Churchill's vision arrived in the early 1950s in the American science fiction writer, Frederick Pohl's The Space Merchants. In that novel's dystopian rather than utopian future tense, an entire factory of workers are fed each day by a single organism, something called Chicken Little, a quivering, rubbery, gray hemisphere of chicken meat. Paul doesn't specify the part, but that seems to be beside the point. Pieces of Chicken Little are, are harvested, apparently painlessly, with a sword, and they all have the same flavor and consistency. Chicken Little is a caricature of the way people eat meat in affluent countries, just a debased version of higher value cuts, nothing else. But the dark side of abundance is precisely what cultured meats advocates want to repair. The scale at which we produce and consume meat through industrialized animal agriculture and the, the pace at which production and consumption have grown, are growing, have ruinous effects from many standpoints. Um, just a few numbers. At present, concentrated animal feeding operations or CAFOs are thought to contribute 14 to 18% of our greenhouse gas emissions each year. They occupy a large percentage of available farmland, create breeding grounds for viral agents affecting both non-human and human animals. As of the late 1990s, about 40% of the grain we produce, civilizationally speaking, was fed to animals, much of that going to meat animals, an important detail since, as we know, it's more calorically efficient to grow plants and feed them to humans than it is to use animals as meaty intermediaries. And as soon as we think about green production, we also have to think of water because making meat is an incredibly water intensive process. To feed more meat eaters by conventional means involves much more than just breeding and slaughtering more animals. It means a large number of costs that have serious environmental consequences which are unevenly spread between rich and poor countries. Almost needless to say, industrial animal agriculture also produces what many see as the unnecessarily cruel treatment of food animals. In examining harm to animals, proponents of cultured meat, especially ones who come from the world of vegan animal protection activism, which many of them do actually, um, they often cite Oxford's own Jeremy Bentham, in particular, his 1789 insistence that when it comes to considerations of the rights of animals, the question is not whether they can reason, but rather whether they can suffer. And they obviously can and do suffer. Their selection, that is, members of the cultured meat, uh, meat movement selection of, of utilitarianism as a variant of moral philosophy with which to confront animal suffering is hardly accidental. Many within the animal protection community have read Peter Singer's 1975 book, Animal Liberation, 
which extended utilitarianism's focus uh, on the greatest good to non-human animals. While utilitarianism as a philosophical view dominates within the cultured meat movement, it's not alone. There are others whose views come closer to the, the deontic, that is, they're concerned not with effects or the promotion of the greatest possible happiness, as utilitarians are, but with the moral character of our actions, with their inherent rightness or their wrongness. And some who take this view have questioned whether or not cultured meat would just be a, a so-called moral crutch and questioned whether it would actually constitute the moral advance that others claim it would. There are, as you might imagine, vastly more dimensions to the cultured meat movement than I can describe in this uh, small talk. But one worth mentioning is the broadly shared and I think charmingly old fashioned notion that civilization is the kind of thing that goes through stages of moral progress and that technological and moral progress tend to march together, the former eating the latter. One question I've debated at some length with my interlocutors in the cultured meat community is whether it's necessary for our souls to change, as it were, um, for us to develop deeper empathy for the suffering of non-human animals, or simply for less harm to be done. My interest, of course, is not in which answer to this question is correct, but what this problem in moral philosophy means to the cultured meat movement. I myself am not a philosophical utilitarian, but I, I share utilitarians' interest in scale. In my research, I ask what it means in a cultural and not just a purely philosophical sense when environmental damage, health risk, and the moral problem of cruelty to food animals become not local and limited, but general and infrastructural. For industrial animal agriculture, for industrial animal agriculture, excuse me, does form a kind of uh, bio-infrastructure underlying our civilization. Dairy and meat mammals are, numerically speaking, the dominant vertebrates on Earth, constituting the bulk of our zoo mass. In the year 2000, it was estimated that their number was around 4.3 billion. And the infrastructure of animal agriculture grows as the meat industry struggles to meet rising demands for their products. Said demand is especially on the rise in China and India, and many demographers expect it to increase in those centers, both of population growth and, and significantly of, of growth of the middle class. The story of rising meat consumption is also um, something we could tell as the story of the spread of the Western diet by some reckonings about four times as land intensive as largely vegetarian non-Western diets. Most broadly, we have to ask if the mid 21st century's growth in meat consumption will sustain late 20th century trends. Uh, between 1960 and the year 2000, global meat production increased about threefold. A replication of such growth would be disastrous, but even a slower rate of increase could have dire consequences, especially against a background of climate change and the loss of farmland. The process of producing cultured meat as conducted for the famous 2013 hamburger demonstration is currently laborious. It shifts the work of growing muscle from the body of say a cow to the laboratory bench. 
Dr. Mark Pasta, professor of, of medicine at Maastricht University, working with his staff, used cell culture and tissue engineering techniques to produce muscle strands that they then formed into the shape of a hamburger. Pasta's team began with a sample of muscle cells taken from the hindquarters of a Blanc Bleu Belge, a breed that it's itself a more traditional form of biotechnology, uh, a cow bred to emphasize a myostatin mutation that causes it to produce extra muscle mass. Then these isolated skeletal muscle cells were encouraged to, to proliferate in a growth medium. The cells merged forming myotubes about 0.3 millimeters in length. Um, and those myotubes were then placed together in a circular configuration around a hub of gel. These configurations of myotubes began to display muscles' natural tendency to contract, and the team exercised them by mechanical means. They, they also could have used electrical ones. And they, the cells accordingly bulked up. The result was a small ring of muscle tissue, which was cut up into strands, and this whole process was then repeated until a great, great many strands were combined to form the burger. In 2013, Mark Post's narration of the process emphasized the growth potential of the cell. A single one could become a trillion and quote, a few cells from a single cow could turn into 10 tons of meat, he said. Mark was transparent about the amount of time and money it took to create the burger. So several months of his lab technician's time, over $300,000 US as reported widely in the media, the expectation was never for the cost to remain high, of course, but for it to plummet as the technology scales up, eventually reaching or going below the cost of conventional hamburger. Needless to say, no skin, bones, organs were grown, nothing to throw away or to describe as awful. And indeed, as, as challenging as it is to make muscle tissue, making functional organ tissue is harder still. The cultured burger made from the cells of the Blanc Blue Belge could be imagined as the continuation through new technical means of the anthropocentric tendency literally embodied by that carefully bred animal. Non-human animals turned into technologies driven by the human desire for particular kinds of animal flesh. While I've stressed the obvious parallels between cultured meat and offal, um, which have to do with their, their, their joint existence, pun intended, on the fringes of modern Western meat consumption, their relation is more properly ambiguous. If truly scaled in, up in the way that Mark Post and other promoters of cultured meat suggest, the production of these kinds of, of hamburgers, not to mention chicken breasts and meatballs and pork loins and even steaks, could really aid and abet the gradual elimination of conventional animal agriculture. And thus uh, millions of tons of less desired parts, they're not simply wasted, but are turned into a wide variety of other things, not only variety meats, but ingredients for pharmaceuticals, cosmetics, household and industrial products, uh, according to one United States Department of Agriculture report. The discarded portions of animal carcasses have afterlives that tie industrial meat production to other industries. The effects of transforming our meat infrastructure through cultured meat would extend far beyond the food system.
the repercussions of cultured meat would include their own form of offal in the sense of side effects so extensive that they're difficult to map. But even as artists and designers excited by the idea of cultured meat have tried to imagine what new carcass-free forms it might take, offal has crept back in. In August, 2014, at a party held one year after the unveiling of his burger, Mark Post was presented with a book called The In Vitro Meat Cookbook, produced by the Dutch design consortium Next Nature. A vast range of forms of meat were included in that book from the very untraditional, like meat paint that children could use like finger paint and then consume, to more traditional forms like steak. This range could be usefully recast in the following way. It ran from the, the, the mimetic to the non-mimetic, from laboratory-grown muscle tissue designed to appeal to our existing tastes to closely resemble familiar forms of meat, mimetic in the sense of copying them, all the way to tissue designed to expand those tastes or to respond to the presumably transformed appetites of the future. But whereas one popular type of cultured meat fantasy promotes pieces of meat as if they developed on an animal, but with no trace of the rest of the body, the art collective Next Nature presumed that a mimetic future for cultured meat would include everything from bones and marrow broth to sweetbreads and lungs. We must assume that in the imagined future Next Nature's cookbook reflects Residual tastes for organs have caused scientists to create cultured organs for consumption as variety meats. And yet this would not only be a dazzlingly wasteful application of medical tissue engineering, something plausible only in a Star Trek-like future of cornucopian abundance, it would also be quite bizarre in symbolic terms. Of course, this is all fantasy, but it matters enormously that even as we fantasize about a future of cultured meat, Awful follows, shadowing the very technology that tries to make awful unnecessary. And this brings me to my closing remarks. Um, when people began to think of growing meat in laboratories, they began to introduce new instabilities into an already unstable symbolic object, meat. The new instabilities derive from the fact that culturing meat means both imitating nature and not imitating it, um, or to put the point differently, replicating the natural by a very painstaking method, making something happen by intention that happens in the wild without intention. Hans Blumenberg, in his essay, Imitation of Nature, first published in 1957, proposed that uh, for about 2000 years, the question of the meaning of all art or fabrication had been answered by Aristotle when he said, the imitation of nature. Here, meaning both natura naturans and natura naturata, that is both nature as a productive principle and nature as produced form. Both nature as something that, that makes things and nature as the set of what is made. This epic, this long epic ends in modernity, Blumenberg says through the will to rebel against our inherited imitative version of techne, of making in all senses of that word, as if copying and responding to the world we are in, uh, we are in and in some sense are given is not enough. 
So Blumenberg is trying to name the modern condition of alienation, which is a very typical thing for a historian or philosopher of the modern West to do. He's trying to say that we rebel against a long history in which the way we make things, the way all of our technologies uh, develop is in imitation of natural processes. But Blumenberg goes further and is much more fine-grained about the relationship between making and technology, including biotechnology, and what we might call a legitimation crisis. Blumenberg asserts that in modernity, the need to create and to know ourselves through creation gives us a sense that we have transgressed against the natural, the given, and against the given's endowment with bedrock meaning. Thus, Blumenberg says, the sum of modern intellectual history constitutes the antagonism between the mechanical and the organic, art and nature, the will to form and the givenness of form between labor and rest. To make meat in laboratories produces a sense of unease, I think, because it shifts us in Blumenberg's terms from rest to labor, from the organic to the mechanical. We are here contemplating eating meat that never had parents. Blumenberg was not suggesting that we restrict human creation, of course, and it isn't towards that end that I invoke him, uh, even if rest and the organic may sound more relaxing than labor and, and the mechanical. Rather, he is useful because the project of creating cultured meat raises enormous and perhaps unanswerable questions about ends. I mean ends in, in the ancient Greek philosophical sense, uh, ends, entail a sense of the purposefulness in living things. Notably, awful has the symbolic power to remind us that our meat was once a self-contained creature with its own purposes. And purposefulness is a version of, as Blumenberg in almost Heideggerian terms puts it, quote, the identity of being and nature. Human ends have a different quality to them. They're, they're less knowable and they're less certain, and they're more subject to philosophical questions that we can ask ourselves and each other. To try to abandon awful by moving meat away from the bodies of animals might be to fully embrace the openness of ends, to sustain a kind of questioning that causes the very unease that Blumenberg wanted to map. And as I've tried to show, even as the pioneers of cultured meat contemplate new futures for flesh, awful travels along with them and to a reader of Freud, it looks suspiciously like the repressed that will always find a way to return. So thank you so much.